Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. We never had been on a plane. Our parents couldn't afford to fly us anywhere. So we had to go on our first business trip because a LA-based dot-com company wanted to buy us out. They're going to fly us out there. We're like the worst dressed people in LA. Um, we get to this meeting. Ryan's actually really sick. We had to have our mom come with, but we were embarrassed by that because, you know, why do we have to? We, we couldn't like, rent a car. We can't rent a car. So we, no we introduced her as our uh, marketing consultant. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine, coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, cultivating the next generation of problem solvers and innovators. The school offers undergraduate and graduate programs in entrepreneurship and corporate innovation, as well as community resources to support new ventures, family businesses, and corporate entrepreneurs. And now, by all means. The entrepreneurial journey of twin brothers Rob and Ryan Weber is already the stuff of legends, and they're only in their 40s. The brothers famously started their first company out of a St. Cloud State dorm room. Freeze.com provided free screensavers and graphics for personal computers, but they really found their sweet spot in online advertising and email marketing. That led to NativeX, a tech company that makes advertising for mobile games and apps. The Webers sold it to Chinese mobile ad platform Mob Vista in 2016 for a reported $25 million. Today, NativeX has offices around the world, from Singapore to San Francisco, and the original in St. Cloud, Minnesota. The Webers, well, they've been involved in too many startups for us to count for here today, but Today, they've shifted their primary focus to investing with the launch of Great North Ventures, which is also headquartered in the St. Cloud area. They are fierce champions of entrepreneurship, particularly in greater Minnesota and smaller towns that don't have all the resources. If anyone can relate to being scrappy and succeeding against odds, it's Rob and Ryan. I think it started with competitive spirit. I think many of the entrepreneurs I know really, they really don't like to lose. Mm -hmm. They like to win. Mm -hmm. And I think Ryan and I always had, you know, there's sibling rivalries, but then there's twin sibling rivalries. And I think for us, that competition, especially growing up of sort of modest means, I think created a environment where we really wanted to succeed. Mm -hmm. And when when you don't have, entrepreneurship is sometimes, there's sort of two paths. Like some people do it out of necessity. And some people do it just because, you know, they think it's a cool thing or whatever. I think for us, it very much felt like if we're going to escape this sort of income bracket that we're in, we've got to be opportunistic. And that's where entrepreneurship came. But I think it was all rooted in that competitive spirit that went way back even before we were in the business, you know, side of things, right? Ryan here. Yeah, I would echo a little bit what Rob said, but, you know, I think our parents encouraged us to do our best. and. Our mom, you know, when we were young kids, we would be dressed the same. And so (laughs) she probably fed this need for like being, you know, gaining attention, you Mm -hmm. know, like that whole, I think that sometimes young kids, but when you're in a household with, you know, our parents, when we were pretty young, they split and we ended up really craving more attention. And so we Mm. 
we helped each other, but we also competed with each other like very, very aggressively, I would say, okay. in sports. So and I was going to say, was it all academics s- and everything? Yeah. Sports, academics. Were you entrepreneurial as kids? What are, what are the earliest memories you have of the earliest memory that I have of, you know, sort of entrepreneurship was actually. Well, there were two. One was collecting golf balls in this like par three golf course behind, like next to us. Uh-huh. But one that stuck out even more was a little lawn care business. Okay. So as I rem- as I remember the story, I shoved flyers in all the neighborhood mailboxes at like age thirteen. Yeah. And then I got I got a, just a couple of houses that agreed to have us mow the lawn. But rather than actually mow the lawn, I subbed it to Ryan, <laughs> and then I ended up pocketing some of the profit. So it was uh, early lessons in, uh, you know, being the leader, being the manager. Yeah. You know, I don't want to mow the lawn. I just, you know, let me build the business. Okay. Right? Were you the one born a second before Ryan? Five, who, five minutes. Five yep. minutes before the older brother. Ryan, why did you let him boss you around like that? <laughs> yeah, I think it's selective memory. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's interesting story. I guess if, if he was running that business, it didn't last very long, but it could have been a product problem. So was it a, a given that the two of you would go to college together? We went to North Hennepin Community College our junior and senior year, huh. never stepped foot in the high school. Oh, wow. And uh, and that was sort of where the genesis of like, you know, the internet, this is 1995. They have a high-speed internet connection in the computer lab at North Hennepin. They have faculty that know, you know, that are passionate about the, whether it's graphic design, software development, the internet, Mm -hmm. and right place, right time for us. Like we shared a beat up Chevy Nova. Mm -hmm. We drove, you know, we would just, we'd go at eight in the morning and we'd stay till they kicked us out. So you were both fascinated with computers from the start. Is that right, Ryan? Yeah. And I think we worked our, you know, typical high school jobs for middle-class jobs, like call centers, retail, but, you know, we still had that entrepreneurial interest and the web really caught our caught our attention so we easily spent over 10,000 hours those two years mm. trying to build websites and promote them but we spent every penny we had on our computer <laughs> our home internet printers you know back in the day CDs mm-hmm. you know so box software and we didn't make any money but by the by before the summer before college we thought we figured some things out and we were, that was going to be our job. And so up until that point though, we had failed really from a financial standpoint. And I think Rob and I, again, craving self-independence maybe, mm-hmm. he was going to go to the U of M. I was going to go to St. Cloud State. And it wasn't until later in the summer, I think it was due to a record year for admissions, U of M was pretty slow to get back to people. And we made it easy. Our older brother was going to St. Cloud State. They have a computer science accredited program mm-hmm. we recruited rob to sing called state Got and that it. was kind of the, that's uh that was the end of it i guess yeah so it would it would have been different if the u had been faster i probably would have went there and who knows how that would have changed history yeah and, you know but they took too long and i just said all right just go to sing called state we only i only applied to two schools so uh-huh. well i guess that's uh too bad for the u <laughs> and and great yeah. for both of you and for for saint cloud the state and for the region so you already were thinking, you didn't just enjoy computers like from a gaming sense or anything. I mean, you were seeing this as, as opportunity. This was business. Did you have a concrete idea of what you wanted to do with computers? We had three or four projects from probably 95 to, you know, 98, 99 when we were in the, you know, between North Hennepin and the first year at, in the dorm rooms at St. Cloud State. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, our first website in 95 was actually an online auction for trading cards. This is before eBay really matured a lot. Mm-hmm. We had it up for a year. It was The scripts work. You could auction. We had a lot of traffic. We had a pretty good knack of, back then it was Yahoo. You know, it wasn't, this is pre-Google. So it's, we're literally like getting, building relationships with editors at Yahoo to list pages to drive traffic that we built this sort of network of fan pages. Yeah. And we quickly, you know, even, even then, like the sports genre was very competitive early on in the internet. But even then, with a little, with an analytical mindset, we were able to get to, you know, maybe fifty thousand visitors a day, Pretty and we good. didn't we didn't put any money, and it was all organic. Were and you so, making money? Uh, no, we just shut it down. You know? <laughs> but uh, it was a learning experience. Yeah, like we didn't really know how to make money. Sure, you but know? you knew so, you could generate traffic, yeah. and that's something. So, but those were the skills. Like mm-hmm. we had I, these projects. We kind of like call it like our tinkering years. By the time we did start the first real business in two thousand, it was called Freeze.com. It was kind of recognizing that from the dial-up days, the broadband days, consumers were looking for software, and they weren't going to buy it in package, package software anymore. So Freeze.com was for free and easy uh, software over the internet, again, before app stores, mm-hmm. before all that. And we could see that there's this incredible pent-up demand to download software. So we said, let's just give it to everyone. And then we built a kind of a marketing optimization technology to give us a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. It was actually fairly similar to lead pages, which would have come like a decade later here in the Twin Cities. Yeah. But it gave us a, you know, we were able to quickly, you know, we went from 2000 to 2005 with raising 320 grand angel round, which we didn't really need that much. We were, we had 50 grand a month in free cash flow from the dorm rooms coming from our tinkering projects. Right, from freeze.com. Yeah. And so by 2005, it was at 30 million revenue, 5 million EBITDA with virtually no invested capital but our own. You know, like our retained earnings just going back in. We had about 50 employees. That's when we had our first exit event. Wait a second. That mm-hmm. was the freeze.com yep, that freeze. had the first exit event. And this, yep. so that's, that's the one that was really started literally in the dorm room. Correct. I just want to know, just quickly paint the picture. Were you, were the two of you going to classes at all? Were you, were you both just sitting there furiously coding all day, Ryan? What was it like? Yeah. You know, from 98 to 2000, I think, you know, Rob kind of skipped forward a little bit there, but you know, for the, for those two years, it was a kind of a lifestyle business. It it wasn't, we didn't take it too seriously, but we were generating a, a decent living, but you don't, a decent living for a college student going to St. Cloud State back then, you know, <laughs> uh, you, we had a surplus. And so our office was our dorm, and then it was our <laughs> duplex, you know, our apartment, and then the duplex. We had an extra bedroom. That was our office. Mm-hmm. And we were living large, you know, with that extra bedroom. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I would say in those years, we continued with this publishing business where you're just creating content and in your studying demand trends, similar to how influencer marketers are getting good at kind of building traffic. Back then, we kind of figure out how to do that with the platforms of that era. Mm-hmm. And so, but from there, we didn't take it too seriously. We had never even been on a plane anywhere. <laughs> and so we started to realize like with the pre-bubble kind of all the hype and everything, this little small web publishing business started to have a lot of traffic. And we started getting interest from people and we we're like, we don't like, what are you talking about? Like, we're just, we're just in college. Yeah. So we were going to school full time those years. That was the golden era. Like that was the pre.com bubble. Yeah. Everything is great. Didn't stay that way for long, but we, uh, we saved up a lot of cash yeah. and we enjoyed college. And we, when your work is your passion, 
it's easy to find the 40 hours a week. School was the work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and for us. But we managed, uh, we uh, we were going to school full time during those years. Which came first, the first exit or college graduation? For for Ryan, it was graduation. I switched majors from computer science to the entrepreneurship. Okay, which is like completely starting over. And yeah. I dropped my course load down to one class a semester. So I had to exit before, you know, the first big exit was before I graduated. And did you stick around to graduate? I did. I never, I don't quit things. Like if I, if I make a goal, like I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. do everything in my power to achieve the goal. And one of my goals was just to get a bachelor's degree. So he wasn't going to let me hang that degree over him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Believe right, me, right. I did for a few years. <laughs> there was, a, there was a funny story though. It wasn't all, there were ups and downs just like every business. We've, we've been a part of 50, 60 startups, many exits, never seen one go straight up into the right. Ours was no different. We went through the dot-com bus, which is about as big of a bus cycle as any in probably tech in the last 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. I remember, though, in 1999, Ryan would remember this. So we didn't, like, again, modest means, we never had been on a plane. Mm-hmm. Our parents couldn't afford to fly us anywhere. Mm-hmm. So we had to go on our first business trip because a L.A.-based dot-com company wanted to buy us out. They're going to fly us out there. We're like the worst dressed people in L.A. Um, we get to this meeting. Ryan's actually really sick. We had to have our mom come with, but we were embarrassed by that because, you know, why do we have, we <laughs> couldn't like, rent a car. We can't rent a car. We're too young. So we, we introduced her as our uh, marketing consultant and she drove us. And Ryan was so sick that at the beginning of the meeting, he spilled water all over the CEO of the acquiring, potential acquiring company. We ended up walking away from the deal, but it was just a. Uh, that was our first time on a trip. So wow. a lot of people go on all these vacations. My kids have heard this story like a hundred times. <laughs> right. Every time we're on like our 50th family trip to a beach somewhere. And I'm yeah. like, hey, you remember dad had to pay his own flights, <laughs> you know, to get on a plane. But anyway. You know, I think you could tell, like meeting that management team and we had friends that sold to them. They were trying to do this quick consolidation of all these web properties and then go public. Mm. But we met the management team and like, what's the business here? Like this, mm. this seems like what we're doing and taking advantage of our stock arbitrage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's economies of scale in media, but we're like, hmm, I don't know. This is our only shot at this. We better make, if we're going to, we can't sell to these guys. This is like, this doesn't feel right. We're going to be working for these guys for 50 years. We just weren't convinced that they had the dr- drive and vision that yeah and this was our life this, this was, was pretty wise at, of you, know, you this, so early on yeah but but so we came back and said we better start saving up and and in a we want to start our own business hmm. it's not a lifestyle let's do this you know we can you know and it was a year kind of in the works we started training people out of our duplex out of that spare bedroom you know at college like recruiting people like you're going to be in the first 10 people we're going to get this office we've got furniture but all of that was driven by this pre-bubble, not believing the hype, not not feeling good about like what was in front of us with that you know stock offer, mm-hmm. which you know where did that stock go two years later? So we we built a capital efficient you know web publishing business, and but at on the flip side, took on a lot of costs right before the bubble burst. So mm-hmm. that that was kind of the early years. It wasn't as Rob said the you know. The first two years were brutal, like two thousand two thousand two. It was rough. We yeah. were down to like our last hundred grand. And when you put your heart and soul into something for since we were really we gave up a lot. Yeah. Like our teenage years, we didn't have the high school experience that most people have. Like we were really working hard trying to get this business going or get the skills, develop the skills, get a business going. So to be so close to going to zero, there was one week I remember, like you know, this is probably like two thousand one. I had complete insomnia for seven straight days. Could not sleep. And it's because I, I couldn't walk up the stairs to our office because I thought 
this is going to go to zero. Mm-hmm. Like, and I had a, it was the only time I've ever seen like someone for mental health, you know, like a therapist. And yeah, and you know, we we overcame it. We were able to figure it out. We, you know, this is something missing. I think in entrepreneurship is this persistence. Yeah, like I think a lot of entrepreneurs. I, I saw a couple that I was I think had really good businesses, but then you know they maybe were adversely affected by COVID, and rather than stick it out for that tough year, they just gave up. I think, mm-hmm. well, I don't feel so bad. I don't feel bad for me. I feel bad for them. Like you have a great business. If you could grind out that year or two of tough times on the other end, and these are people who probably don't have wealth. And I'm like, there's nothing gives me more joy than, you know, seeing an entrepreneur have that first big exit event when you know how hard they work for it. It's not like it was given to them. Do you think that it was your, um, you know, growing up without a a lot of means that made you so persistent? You you realized the value even though you were really young. I think that, you know, maybe now looking back at it, but I think at the time, it, I don't know, it was, if we weren't thinking that, I think like in, in reality, like if we went to zero in our early 20s, who cares? Like, mm-hmm. but we didn't look at it that way. We looked at it as we invested tens of thousands of hours and we need to, you know, blood, sweat and tears. We got to figure this out. Like we're not, we're not mailing, we're not shutting it down. I think, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you have go- high goals and there's going to be cycles. We're in a cycle right now, you know, and so- when you're doing it for the first time and you don't have mentors, you kind of look at it like it's the end of the world. But after you've gone through it, you realize there's ups and downs in business. Mm-hmm. You got to realize what you can personally handle and, and, and find a work-life balance. And that's really difficult for people that are driven and want to succeed, I think, a lot of times. But everyone has to find that balance that's right for them. It's a very personal thing. And I think for us, the good thing was we were surrounded by friends and family. We had each other to feed off of. So I felt like there's anxiety, right? You, you're, it's a good anxiety, though. Like, we're down in this game, but we're going to, like, work hard. We're going to get better every day, and we're going to get dig out of this. And, and that's the other thing. We didn't get ahead of ourselves. We never took on a lot of debt. We weren't accountants, but we had rules of thumb on what we were willing to do and not do with expenses. Yeah. And so when we were experimenting with a new business, we weren't going to spend our core profit we wouldn't spend more than that in OPEX. And, but, but when you lose 80% of your revenue during a market pullback, like we did during the dot-com crash, you have to rethink everything. Your assumptions yeah. go out the window. And going through the pandemic, going through these other cycles, you've already done that before. We've already done that three times. So it's in your DNA. And that's why Rob has written, written about this in our blog. But there's been a lot of great companies coming out of down markets. And, and so I think you have this... You never feel like you're out, yeah. you know, just like in sports, like you, you can make a comeback. So but now, in, in is, the time to, now yeah. is the time to yeah. press on, basically. I, I, I bet a, uh, maybe a bold prediction that the, the, the next wave of like blockchain or crypto startups, mm-hmm. the ones that really are the durable companies, they probably come out of this. La- the, this is the absolute last time, like worst period that someone would think about starting something in like blockchain. Yeah. But I bet you te- we'll look back 10 or 20 years and go, wow. That's from Google. That's the Google of blockchain, and it started right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yep. you can track back. A lot of the greatest companies in tech came th- from these down periods. Right. So. so after you had your first exit, and you're so young, um, did you immediately start working on the next? That that was Native X. I think the one that you're probably that gets the most attention. 
It was always a 16-year run within this holding company. That, and it, sort of think of it as launching like three or four businesses within the 16-year duration. So the Freeze.com business never really went away. Um, it was still it was generating millions of dollars. The, the first exit was actually we sold a third of the business to a PE fund, and we just recapped the $15 million they gave us. How and did you guys know how to do that stuff? We, we did have a small angel round, and we had two uh, gentlemen join our board, both from the Bay Area. No mm-hmm. one locally seemed to care what we were doing too much, except for one person, Brian Schoenborn, an attorney up in St. Cloud. He's very entrepreneurial. Did you have professors? Who professors, were- yeah. The professors were pretty supportive. But I think the, uh, there was no one on our cap table other than uh, Brian. Had a, uh, it was a very small uh, interest. But Young and Pradeep, these two guys from the Bay Area, Young was a public tech company CEO in Palo Alto or wherever, mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. And Pradeep was you know, similarly like an executive at a big tech company. They didn't know about internet publishing. They were more came from more like the hardware world. Mm-hmm. But they, they knew about boom and bust cycles. They knew about you know, how, a, how a, a high growth business should function. So they provided a lot of mentorship to us. Which is sort of why we got into investing, you know, right after that first exit. Well, first off, we saw what a great exit they got out of it, partial. Mm. Some, we did have some silent angels that were partners with Pradeep and uh, Young. And uh, they, some of them completely, we just recapped out of the business. And then they stayed on for the duration of the, the next 11 years. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, you know, I, I think we thought we could provide value back to entrepreneurs by sharing some of our experiences and, you know, point of view some connections. And we thought, hey, if our investors got such a high multiple return, that looked pretty easy. Let's go do that. <laughs> so we, did, we made 14 investments from 2005 to 2015 or 16. While you were still running your business, yep. you, they overlapped. It wasn't yep. like you finished. And then, okay, that's interesting. Did you at any point think about going to Silicon Valley, especially with your mentors there? And especially given the fact that people weren't paying as much attention or understanding what you were doing here, did you think about relocating? We never did. I mean, we, we named our business Freeze.com because we're proud of where we're from. <laughs> and everyone who told us that we couldn't do something here, we would just take it as motivation as we're going to do it here. Mm-hmm. And I think, at least for me, one of my personal goals, it's like kind of unfinished business. I want to be a part of building a billion-dollar-plus consumer internet company in Minnesota. Hmm. And we have a few in our portfolio that we think you know could be that. Because right now, I think a lot of the mindset of the Midwest is like, we can build there's all these big, you know, companies here. You can build enterprise software, but you can't do consumer here. And you look at like Detroit, they were saying the same thing, you know, and then six, seven years ago, StockX has started, comes a four or $5 billion company, you know, and now everyone says you can build consumer companies in Detroit. Mm-hmm. We can do them here too. Mm-hmm. We've got great talent with people at Best Buy and Target, people like Ryan and I, you know, we didn't get to that level, you know, but we have some unfinished business. Like we are going to see a billion dollar plus consumer internet company come out of the Twin Cities. And I think, you know, hopefully we're at, you know, we're one of the, you know, we're not of the other few funds around town. Like they, they don't want to touch consumer, most of them, right? They're, because it's, that hasn't, that pattern hasn't happened yet, right? Rob, I heard you say something interesting when we, when we, you were on a, a panel actually recently with Twin Cities Business that you think a lot of the problem here is that people are ready to sell too soon, too early, settle for, for not enough. First of all, how do you feel when you think about your biggest exit? How do you feel? How did you know the time was right? I'll, I'll, add, I'll have Ryan add to this, but I, my quick perspective on that, like I, I was talking to Tom Goodmanson, uh, 
He's, uh, I think, uh, has been CEO of Calabrio. That's our, what, second largest software company in the state. Mm-hmm. And, and it was sort of Tom's experience. You know, they didn't become the second largest software company in the state of Minnesota because they sold it, you know, a few years in. I think, unfortunately for us, you know, publishing businesses inherently don't have a lot of defensibility. And also, we were a consumer desktop software publishing business. And then 2008 rolls around. And, you know, you have Android and iOS and everyone... If you recall that moment in history, everyone said, the PC's dead, mm-hmm. right? And we're sitting here saying, what do you mean it's dead? We're doing like 10 million a year in EBITDA, yeah. you know? And so we just said, well, no one would buy it because everyone, it was going to die, right? So we just, kept, we just kept running that business to fund some of these other businesses hmm. and ultimately never found a buyer. And, you know, by 2014 or 15, we actually did shut down the PC software publishing business. And, that, and then within that time frame, though, we were also, there were probably two things you could do. Milk the business or go tackle iPhone and Android. And we're not the kind of people who just tuck their head in the sand and say, let's milk, milk this business. That's not how we operate. So Ryan came off of the core business, just him. You know, we we're probably like 70 employees at that time. Mm-hmm. We said, go figure out how to build a business for iOS and for Android or Google Play. Hmm. So Tom was a St. Cloud State graduate as well. I Calabrio, Tom Goodmanson, and he's an accounting major. And so he started off in consulting and getting into this Calabria business. It was venture back. Split Rock was mm-hmm. the, their early funder. It was a spin out. But Tom saw the, the market opportunity, figured out the go-to-market channels of a capital-efficient, scalable business. And there's liquidity, and then there's the exit. And like you see it a lot in first-time entrepreneurs. They want that first liquidity, and sometimes the strategic comes knocking. And they really are, there. There are examples of both people taking an exit early and people really gritting it out in Minnesota. But mm-hmm. I think there's more of the former. As we're developing as an ecosystem, there's becoming greater access to capital. There's more options for secondary. There's more employees willing to take options. So you're able to start producing profits and create liquidity. Maybe that some of those options maybe weren't as accessible in in those years. Not to mention, when you looked at, I don't look at the the market we were going after. Didn't as Rob mentioned, a publishing business. It wasn't a billion dollar type enterprise potential. The mm-hmm. business we were in. Okay. We tried to find others that were, but to be honest, we we never did. In Tom's feedback to entrepreneurs is timing is everything. But if you have conviction as an entrepreneur, don't sell too early. For the right market, if you believe in it and you have a, a vision, and there, don't don't do it. Yeah. It's you'll be a biggest regret. We didn't have that type of business, and so I think finding those singles and doubles along the way led to a very good return for us and our limited number, you know, angels. But I think that if had we had that business, I don't think Rob and I were the type of people to back down from a right. competition. We, you know, I don't think we would have sold a theme game. Here. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Stubbornness. Yeah. I don't yeah. think we would have sold early if we had the right business. But I think yeah. I think that's also why I at least from my point of view, I felt we I felt like a failure. Like we what? we produced like forty plus million in exit proceeds on three hundred and twenty grand of invested capital. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we set out to do. We set out to build like a billion, you know, much bigger company. And so it still feels like we have unfinished business. So, what will the Weber brothers stir up next? We'll discuss after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. 
Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. Rob and Ryan talk about their approach to investing and mentoring, but it's likely too soon to count them out as operators, as you'll soon hear. Like we want to find the ambitious founders who want to create these really, truly generational kind of companies. And I actually think that is a, a, sometimes a problem because I think the ambition of the founder matters so much. But that also has ch- shaped our thinking as we've gotten older. We're not, we used to be the young entrepreneurs for everything. Every award, everything. Oh, look at those Webers. We're not anymore. Not so much the We're youngest. in our early 40s, right? Like, <laughs> oh, you're but, old now, old. over the hill. But yeah. I, I think with that age comes some wisdom. Like, we don't want to spend time on things that we don't think can be that generational company. Hmm. And that might mean a different path on how it's maybe not how it starts, but how it can scale. But on the flip yeah. side, I mean, you know, people hear you say that you feel like a failure for an exit that size. And I mean, that's crazy. Do are you are you missing opportunities if you're only looking for that thing that is so huge? Aren't there a lot of other opportunities that, you know, are could be important along the way? So my background as an operator, I led uh, I after graduating with a degree in computer science, I studied entrepreneurial management, innovation mm-hmm. practices, product management. So Rob led corporate development and sales. We both wore many hats, but those are kind of our specialties. Mm-hmm. When you start a business, what is your goal? It could be impact, it could be financial, it could be anything, but you have to have a goal. And so Rob has expressed a goal now. When we started the fund, I had a baseline. My, I, I managed at Peak a team of nine product managers split between the Bay Area, where we opened a second office, and then our headquarters here in Minnesota. I had a team of nine product managers, very talented individuals from a wide variety of tech ecosystems, schools, MBAs from Wharton and computer science graduates from Stanford and people that worked at Motorola in Chicago, all over, all over the Seattle. But you learn from each other. We build this process for innovation where we're formulating, you know, it was more of an adaptive style. It was early to embrace lean startups. Eric Reese was a business partner of ours that wrote the book. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we built an agility, an adaptive style of innovation because we didn't find that great business model. But learning that after we started a business, right, it's easier to pivot. When it's an idea on paper, Rob and I just chased, like, where's the profit? That was our strategy in the beginning. And so Mm -hmm. as you reflect back, you know, that education we had by building our business helped inform, like, our investment strategy and and the types of characteristics we look for in a business model. So I started doing training on lean startup exponential technology, and then we had a third course we offered with our fun initiative called Startup School called, it was on agile software Mm -hmm. development lifecycle or project management. So with that training, I had two, we had 200 innovators go through our training programs for free during the first two years of the fund, rotating in-person training, Twin Cities and St. Cloud. And, and that was something we'd work through. It was a five, on nights, it was five, three-hour courses. And we would talk, what's your goal? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, let's map that out in three years if you're going to get there. What do you need to do this year? What do you need to do next year? You want to do a billion-dollar company? There's going to be an investor, a stakeholder group that that resonates with. You want to do a small business, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. If you're thoughtful about it, 
you can kind of measure your progress against your goals. And, and that's how you, you also get away from digging a hole. Sure. Don't chase something that's, you know, if you're disciplined about it, you can kind of see like this isn't maybe going so well. We better pivot. There's capital efficient businesses. We look at the risk reward as an investor, but there's a return profile our investors we're targeting. And so. so, Ryan, do you share your brother Rob's vision of building this billion-dollar business? Is that the dream for both of you, or do you have to kind of rein him in now and then? Yeah. As Rob mentioned, I think I think Minnesota's had some successes. They're not. It's not well-known, especially in consumer internet, like nationally. It's definitely a personal kind of unfinished business mm-hmm. to help that type of business succeed in our region going against the grain a little bit. As Rob mentioned, that was a personal objective. But I'd say for our fund, our, our main objective is to deliver returns for our investors. Sure. And- so, so let's talk a little bit more about that. What year did you two officially launch Great North Ventures? I think we, we started out 2017, but really it was 2018. It was kind of when we were just getting going. But that wasn't really the beginning. You'd already been investing and in doing yeah. some of this. You formalized it. You raised your first fund. And the the goal and focus was? We saw a gap. I think there were maybe four venture funds back then. Mm-hmm. There's obviously more now. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really small funds. But in terms of funds, there were maybe four or five. And we have, you know, we've gotten to know a lot of other entrepreneurs in the Twin Cities, uh, tech entrepreneurs especially. And everyone, we didn't raise any money, so we didn't have this, like the horror stories, but we heard a lot of the horror stories from our friends. Okay. And we thought, all right, we have a, we've now been successful investing in marketplace businesses, enterprise software businesses. And we always had that consumer background because that's, you know, as operators. Mm-hmm. So we thought, I think people don't understand. You can't be a good investor if you don't, you know, you, you don't have patterns or things that you, or knowledge about a, a business model or Hmm. And so I think we had a diverse enough if you're going to be a local oriented investor, then you have to, you have to be more flexible in the kind of businesses you'll look at because you cannot fill you cannot fill a whole venture fund full of consumer internet companies in the Twin Cities. There wouldn't be enough worth unless you're willing to sacrifice returns. Sure. And and you were you knew you wanted to focus local. That was important. It, it was kind of more re- regional and we saw this gap and we saw a lot of angry people, founders who weren't getting the capital they wanted. And we saw we we and again back Why? To our, why? With your with your contacts on the coast too, why were they skipping over the Midwest? I think in the earliest rounds, you know, a lot of the investors don't have the network here that you know, coastal investors, they don't want to get on a plane to go to a board meeting. And this is before COVID and stuff too. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's sort of changing now, though. I think that it's sort of like you can, it's much more, almost every software company is remote first. You know, the, it's, I think the pressure, you know, to, to, you know, only invest within 10 miles of San Francisco or something that that's not as pervasive anymore. Yeah. But uh, I think that it certainly was, uh, I think COVID really changed a lot. Of it. I think there's both pros and cons for the Twin Cities. It also means all the most talented people in the Twin Cities are now getting recruited by the best companies in the world. Mm-hmm. So that, to the extent that if they, you know, if people were much more focused on in-person work, mm-hmm. that, that you're now competing with a global labor market, right? But, but helping this market has been important to both of you. What mm-hmm. were you going to say, Ryan? You know, at the origin of Great North Ventures, we, we exited our last operating business to a public Chinese company, helped them through transition, just integration. And then after that, we were either going to start a fund. We had 11 years of angel investing history, in, including we were very early members of Gopher Angels. They were a great partner for part-time you know, angel investors. 
that was our side hustle, or we could start another business. Those are the two, or you could just retire if you were willing to live modestly, which, you know, when you look at it, what was always interesting, having built an office in the Bay Area and growing it to 25 people, you start to see that there's not that big a difference in the talent. Mm -hmm. There's some of the training and programs in the ecosystem there and in the universities there that are providing a capacity, uh, kind of there's a, a new methods of doing entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. But we saw momentum in the region. We saw that momentum shifting. Our friends that worked for us in the Bay Area thought we were nuts. You're never going to have a unicorn in the tw Twin Cities. That never bothered us. They always said we were nuts when we started a consumer media business in the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. So I think when, you, when I go back to that period, you have to make a bet. We believed in this ecosystem. And we knew that the Twin Cities wasn't alone, but we knew the Twin Cities and, and St. Cloud. <laughs> I was going to say, you didn't, it's not just the Twin yeah. Cities. I mean, you set up base and committed to, yeah. to being in St. Cloud. You live in St. Cloud. Why? Yeah. And there's pros and cons of each ecosystem, but we kind of learned to try to take the best of what you could, but also recognize the challenges. And so we opened that office in the Bay Area and we leveraged it for what, what, what it was. Mm -hmm. And there were things that it wasn't good for. And so- with that, we saw this opportunity to do more, you know, regionally. And so it wasn't a mandate. It was a strategy. Hmm. And so as investors and operators, we'd worked in different types of businesses, as Rob mentioned. So you still have a comfort zone of the types of businesses. We, we'd run enterprise and consumer products. So we had a, a somewhat diverse as, as well as the investments that we made. So shifting back to St. Cloud, St. Cloud has a... Five, even today, there's 500 graduate undergraduates at the Department of Computer Science. There's still, you know, seven, 8,000 enroll at the time. It was as high as, eight, it was 18,000 when we were there. There's energy in, the, in these universities. There's, there, there, were, there were so many student organizations. There was an e-commerce club, a BCIS club, an ACM club. Rob and I, we didn't, we were, I, at least in the computer science school, you were kind of like, you felt a little bit, I don't know, like, in the classroom, you didn't want to talk too much mm -hmm. as engineers, as a lot of international students as well, really bright people. But you go to the computer lab and you're, you're just people and you're just working together. You're, you're creating interesting software. You're doing, you know, we were doing some cool stuff with AI. And so those professors, the more you get to know them, they're just people too. Mm -hmm. So Rob and I have a lot of stories from the people that St. Cloud State connected us to and, to and the community. So they welcomed us. We were outsiders. I never, and I, you know, I, uh, we kept our headquarters there. And I think when you see what that community has to offer, you don't, that's a resource. Yeah. Like we had a surplus of engineering talent and mm. in, in, in faculty who would help us find the best talent and even help attract them to St. Cloud State because we could offer them jobs. Interesting. And so for that, that was a great nucleus for a business. I, I have, so I've kind of had my, I live in Maple Grove, so I have, I kind of have a foot in each, yeah. you know. Yeah. But I would say central Minnesota, like broadly, it's not just St. Cloud. It's like the 50-mile radius. Mm -hmm. Incredibly supportive of us since we were like teenagers and we moved up there. Well, yeah, you're and like the, you're the heroes. Yeah, it's been, and it's been, you, you know, it's it's just different in a little bit smaller city versus the Twin Cities. Like mm -hmm. the way that people want to try to help you, you know, I think it's just, it's different. You don't have the clustering like you might have in the Twin Cities, but you have you know, they might, you don't have as many entrepreneurs that you can call on that are doing tech, right. but you have a lot of other people who are business owners or entrepreneurs. 
and they they want to they are cheerleaders for you. Sure. So I think that that helped a lot. And then, you know, what I try to do is be the bridge. Like Maple Grove is sort of, you know, right between the Twin Cities and St. Cloud. I try to be the bridge for anyone who wanted to do like tech out of St. Cloud. You know, I'd meet people like Mini Star was getting going, and I'd say, hey. Uh, you know, there's this mini demo thing. You guys in St. Cloud, they never market to you. They don't. They don't know mini mini demo exists or mini bar. Mm-hmm. And say, come, you guys should join me. It's really awesome. They come down. And, wow, that's awesome. So then, then after a while, I talk to the mini star people and say, this is supposed to be about Minnesota. Why don't we do a mini demo in St. Cloud? Mm-hmm. And so it was funny. I don't know. That was probably like 2008. We did a mini demo up there. We had 250 people, and like 150 of them drove up from the Twin Cities. We did it at St. Cloud State. Wow, and we had the dean of the uh, business department actually help me bring beer on campus, which is you know that's really against their policies up there. So I remember the mini star people just getting a really big kick out of that because they're like at the end of the event they're like loading the back of my truck with like cases of leftover beer, and <laughs> it was like a full circle moment. But I think there's there's a level of support, mm-hmm. the faculty at the university, the business, you know, community up there, and I think that happens in smaller towns, uh, you know. And I, I think what I found, uh, the point I wanted to make there too is those people now know about like Ministar or they'll, they drive down for that. Mm-hmm. You know, 15 years later, because I introduced that to a lot of people interested in tech up there, I'm seeing people that I haven't talked to in a while actively participate in the Twin Cities, but they just want to be invited. Right. They want to be a part of the conversation. It's a third of the people in Minnesota don't live in the Twin Cities. Yeah. You can either choose to include them or you can exclude them. Hmm. And, you know, and I, I think we've just tried to take the kind of just kind of promote like one state, like let's try to help everybody here, whether they're in a, you know, living on a farm in northern Minnesota or something like or whatever sure. on the Iron Range. Let's, well, now you got this yeah. movement of like homesteading and you can live anywhere and work anywhere and work remote. But, you know, this obviously back when we started our fund, that was not the case. We've come a long way, I think, with the pandemic and transitioning to a more entrepreneurial friendly. but. There are still challenges in greater Minnesota, and I think the state, I'm really excited by, you know, the Launch Minnesota initiative being led by Neela Mulligard. Mm-hmm. It's She's really had great. support from both both sides of the aisle and Commissioner Grove and, and the governor. That, that initiative has brought together a collaboration that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. And so you have these cities like St. Cloud, which is a big greater Minnesota city. And they don't have the density to do all the programming. But when you partner, you can do more together. And so I would say the capital is great, like with the angel tax credit and, you know, some of these programs. But the amount of capital we're funding, the entrepreneurial ecosystem is really tiny per capita compared to other states relative to what we have. Yeah. What's really, though, significant, I think, is the the collaboration that this initiative has, the marketing value of that. And so just in the sh- few short years here, I'd say if you're an entrepreneur in greater Minnesota, you you have a lot greater access. And we still have work to do, but you're seeing programs that were only accessible in the Twin Cities become accessible statewide. Mm-hmm. And this is brand new. So, And if you want to look at where's the poorest counties in the state, they're in greater Minnesota. Right. And if we want to you know, this, uh, so I think that these initiatives and this transition of change is in, in the end, we all like to visit the lake country, mm-hmm. right? We all like to go up and north. We, now it's in vogue to homestead up yeah, there, but yeah. right? But, who, but we, we invest in those communities and the entrepreneurial ecosystem 
And it's going to be a, a better place to be, whether you live there, you homestead, you work remote, or, you know, you work in this, you know, small businesses or services. Not everybody who has a successful exit or two or three becomes as generous with their time or mentoring or philanthropic as both of you. Did you imagine your careers going in this direction? Did you consciously discuss that this is what we want to do next? Or is it just the way you're wired? I, I think our mentors on our board, we we did kind of have a sense of the culture of that was kind of the early years of Silicon Valley and the growth. You read about it, but we also had board members that were friends that were had a firsthand account of it. And they were recruited out of the University of Pennsylvania, Young and Pradeep to Intel uh, by Andy Grove, mm. the famous Intel co-founder. Mm-hmm. When you hear the stories of some of these leaders, they said, if we're going to have great businesses, we need great communities. Hmm. And so I think you've got the business owners I know, I find to be like very, we're as a state, I think we're very giving everywhere. Yeah, like, I was really blown away from someone who didn't have a lot to give to seeing like, wow, these people really care. And I see that as like the norm, not the exception. Yep. But I think that people, they, they want, I guess there's, you know, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, sustainable programming. They don't mm-hmm. want their money to go to waste. They want to make an impact. Sure. It takes work, right? It takes time and it takes capital. But those, those resources exist. There's got to be the leadership driving it. And it really takes a community to build an ecosystem, just like Leaders can can really help set that on a path. And we've had leaders in the Twin Cities that really help develop the ecosystem over the last mm-hmm. 20 years in tech. And and it's it's really I think it's really flourishing. If you look at the, the growth from the number of financings and everything, it is growing everywhere. But yeah. like it feels really strong here. And, and but you look at that in greater Minnesota, it's you know, I did I did some reporting and I was asked to uh, I shared this at the Launch Minnesota kickoff. Uh, I was the outstate investor persona because I live in St. Cloud, but I spend, uh, but I, I share some data and on a per capita basis, you look at where, Dul- these are not small markets, Duluth, St. Cloud, Mankato, we had anywhere between one, or if you look at a per capita, the amount of first venture financings that were occurring in the couple years predating our fund, per capita, the number of them that were existing for the population was between zero and one half the efficiency of the Twin Cities. And this is the entire Twin Cities. Mm. And so when I look at that, it's like, it's kind of puzzling because I don't think the Twin Cities is Silicon Valley yet either. Yeah. You know, and so let's maybe just like nurture that a little bit more (laughs) and see what we can do. And it just, it seems to make sense from an economic policy. It's these resources. These businesses are run by great people. Yeah. And we have these, a third of the state's population, you know, great communities to live in. Why wouldn't we want to invest in that those resources? So it is kind of a capital approach. We do we do investing first. We did it to make money out of our family office. Now that we're you know we've had a little more success, we don't we've always tried to be involved in the community. That was also where we recruited talent. Mm-hmm. Right, we hired our be- a lot of people. We met through Mini Star, Mini Demo. So people, you can do it. I think I think it, for us there was a very capital intention with what we did. You know, we do donate money and time, but now it's like you look at the, it's kind of more, is it short term or long term? That's a, I look at the impact things we're doing. I think we're going to benefit all financially from sure, this, sure. but it's not going to be in the next two years. And, and, and so I think we have a long view 
And we're at a place in our careers now where we can take a long view. That's not where we started in our career. Right, but, right. Yeah. Um, right, just give me the, the quick overview right now of where you are with the current fund for, for Great North Ventures. Yeah, so we, uh, it was announced uh, just about a year ago, we closed our second fund, $41 million. So first fund was publicly announced, $23.7 million. So you combine those two and it's $64, 65000000 million. Yeah. We've, we've raised a bit more than that for some other opportunistic uh, investments. So all told, we're right around $70 million in capital. Um, so we've, you've been really fortunate to have, you know, a really diverse and awesome group of investors supporting us, you know, even from that first fund, like we didn't know we could raise a fund. We never raised any money before. That was like a new thing. But I think, uh, I do think unlike maybe some others that approach this, we, we have a track record, track record as entrepreneurs, track record as investors. Um, you know, yeah, you can look at that. You were talking so, about how, um, it's, it's a little tough, Rob. To, to, for you to just hang out at a co-working space because half the people there are desperate to get your attention and your money. Um, what advice would you give to the, to the founders that are listening and are salivating at the idea of working with the two of you or getting funded by you? So there's this famous blog post from Mark Suster out of LA, uh, Upfront Ventures, and he says, it's lines, not dots. And what he's, what's this, you know, treat fundraising like you treat a, like selling to a customer. You're, uh, you want to build a relationship over time. So the worst way to fundraise is to wait until you need money and then put your like a pitch deck together mm-hmm. and just cold go into VCs and say, hey, I'm right. Re- you know, what we're trying to see is like, it's like momentum and execution. And we started a podcast called Execution is King mm-hmm. just for people who've had success to be able to share some of the wisdom they got along the way. And, and it's because we really believe in execution. Like we don't think we would be here you know, if we didn't know how to build companies, right. we wouldn't have made it to this point in our career if we didn't have, if something wasn't working. It wasn't, you know, I don't, I think there was some luck in being in the right place, right time, but also a lot of hard work and execution and skills that you develop. So I think that's the thing. So, you know, maybe a better, if you know you want to raise money in a year, introduce yourself six months beforehand when you're not raising money, you know, send updates every couple months, even if it's a couple paragraphs. Yeah. You know, build a relationship, cultivate it. You know, you don't want to go to a VC. Here's my pitch deck. I'm raising around. Like, not that I don't know. I mean, we still welcome. We welcome all deal flow, but your success rate is going to be a lot lower, right? Mm-hmm. That'd be my my main advice. I have a little uh, some advice too from working because in my classes teaching the lean startups, uh, I had a lot of people in the idea stage, the concept stage, mm-hmm. and you know, I think raising venture capital, we essentially bootstrapped our business. There are different ways to build a business, and you you get to decide. It's your company. If you're raising venture capital to, for the numbers to work, there's certain size of market, capital efficiency that are going to be required for that VC to get their return. There's a lot of reference materials now on like angel investing for both the entrepreneur and investor. And so this has developed into a set of standards and expectations and norms that in now with the pandemic, I think there are virtual matchmaking pitch events. There is so much opportunity, but you still got to have the goods. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if you're in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, if you clear milestones, you're going to get fundraised. I really, truly believe that. But there's so much capital to right now in venture capital, record levels of money being invested. And so... What I see is, you know, there's 
businesses that are started oftentimes by people who scratch an itch. They 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 maybe don't have the formal discipline practices to build a business, but they're hustling, they're selling product that'll get you funded when you get far enough, <laughs> you know, or you won't need the funding. Mm-hmm. And there's a we, we've invested in boots in companies that got 200k in G, monthly GMV gross sales with no fundraising. They built their business with low or no code and they were successful. You can still do that. But more common, you see entrepreneurs wanting to raise a lot of capital. And and I think they're not clearing, for VCs anyway, I think they're not often doing the research to to support a right. pre-seed investment. So there's now when, this expectation. Yeah. yeah. So we in fund one, we we actually plan to write like ten one hundred thousand dollar checks as pre-seed investors. But we said if we're going to invest in either a repeat founder, we believe you can execute because the failure rate is so high, or you need to do the work. And usually in three months, if you're doing appropriate research, you can size up the opportunity, pre-sell it. You don't even have to build the product, but you have enough evidence there that I'll, I'll bet on that. Mm-hmm. So when people would take my class, I think they would learn. I would share this some of these industry norms and standards because that's that's my life. Yeah. So I can share that perspective with people. And I always, I would tell them, if you get stuck with the discipline, come see me. If you reach these milestones, come see me. And probably five or 10% of the entrepreneurs would, would, would ever come see me after they finished the class. Interesting. May, maybe I'm a jerk and like, they, <laughs> I was into, you know, like, and they That's just didn't they like me. Maybe they, went, maybe, maybe they saw the other, some <laughs> other local yeah. angels. But I think there's becomes this mutual understanding when you mm-hmm. start just educating people on this on these opportunities and that education through ILT Academy, uh, the U, U of M's extension doing Lean Startup. I think this education is happening broadly for the first time in our state the last three years. Hmm. And I think you're going to see there's entrepreneurs that would take our classes and they'd say, man, I put five years into this startup. I wish I knew what I know now. Wait till those we have literally several hundred people now a year getting trained in, in, with this education, maybe even a 500 or 1,000. Mm-hmm. That just started even at our top universities five, 10 years ago. So it's like you're going to see this, this catching up to some of the best practices in Silicon Valley. You're going to see, I think, really, I, I, I'm really optimistic about where we can go as a community. Hmm. I, I, super quick point, though. I think one common value that Ryan and I share, and I see it in a lot of successful entrepreneurs, is accountability. You will probably never hear Ryan and I talk about how we're the victim of something. We couldn't build our startup because we couldn't raise money or we couldn't do this. If we couldn't raise a startup, what do we need the money for? To hire a designer? Well, I don't need money to do that. There's public information on how to learn graphic design. <laughs> don't know how to write code? Need to hire an engineer? Go learn how to write code. You know, So don't, don't be a victim. Be yeah. accountable. Yeah. Don't let people tell you no. And I think you'll see this pattern with successful entrepreneurs. They're gonna they're they're going from zero to one with or without you, and you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. But they're doing it. They're not waiting for someone to decide if they can do it. They're doing it. Right. So obviously, you are now known as successful VCs and known probably first as investors. But I still hear you hungry for the next big idea. How much? How do you divide your own time between mentoring, managing, and still kind of? The entrepreneurial thinking. Yeah, you know, I think when you work with the, so there's the mentoring and coaching. We try to provide that capacity as a fund, as an operator-led fund. We have a lot of in, 
investors who have scaled businesses. Uh, and we, we just try to provide that mentorship, like mm-hmm. Rob was talking about earlier. With our second fund, we did start a new initiative called our Venture Studio. So we're actually incubating two companies right now as a fund, Backhouse Brands. It's uh, Mankato and St. Cloud founded. And NextGen, which was founded in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Hmm. And both companies are attracting capital from new investors, not just our fund. And we are, we're, it's early, but these are greater Minnesota businesses that we would put up against top startups in any, in Silicon Valley. But these are businesses that you're yeah. directly yeah, so, involved in? Yeah. So our team gets involved in a fra- fractional support of these businesses. And so our team is both our staff at Great North Ventures, but it's also some of the advisors that are involved in the fund and then our network. So mm-hmm. when you have all these people that have scaled businesses, we have relationships to local talent and international talent. There's full-time fractional and agency contractor relationships that you know at which stage who you would want to put in the seat. So things go seem to go a lot faster when we're working with, we bring in a full-time management team early on but we're able to work together with them to help them with team formation, capital, capital access to capital. And then the, I think the, the last thing, even the early customer introductions, and you've got a, a network as a fund that you can leverage. And so this is, uh, this is something new, and it is, it's been exciting, but there's a reason we're only doing two of those. <laughs> <laughs> so we're investing in 25 companies in addition to those two companies. But after you get them to, you know, that seed stage, I think they just operate like any other company. But the benefit that it gives you, too, is as an investor slash, I guess, fractional resource to those startups, we, we help all more with the back office work. They can focus on product and sales. Mm-hmm. And so they get to focus. They also get to get paid in the beginning. Unlike most, a lot of startups, you working for sweat equity in the early days. So it's a way for talent to get involved in a startup without maybe taking all of that the hardship if they're at a fail, you know, not in a personal situation. But then when you look at the, for the fund, it's giving our fund direct access to, okay, you know, we work with the management team. We're seeing these different technologies, these different resources. Let's try it out on our studio company. Mm-hmm. And then that gives you additional expertise and knowledge. It's one thing to be at a board and talk about something, but when you're struggling with some of the same, you know, what systems should we use for CRM, what, you know, these kind of things. It gives you a very real, you know, current, you know, uh, uh, need to perform. And so the, those, that knowledge is part of that kind of founder collective that our fund brings with it's these companies plus the early stage companies we work with all sharing that knowledge. But we happen, I think we're closer to it as a fund. Mm. So it makes us better investors. Got it. Rob, how do you divide your time? What's what's a typical week when you're not podcasting? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was interesting. I, I thought when we started the fun, like this would be somehow less work, yeah. you know, than what we were right. we just did for you know. Yeah, you're just writing the months. checks. It's not less work. It's no? just different work. Huh. Like I get up at like four a.m. most days. My wife thinks we're, like I'm crazy, but like I'm excited to work on the business. Could you imagine yourselves actively doing another startup? Oh, totally. I mean, in some respects, a lot of people go, I had someone tell me this on a call yesterday, very successful person who's an entrepreneur. And he said, man, I want your job someday. It must be so cool. "Eh, It's cool. But you know, it's different. 
We get a quarterly update from a portfolio company, or maybe we check in once a month. That's not the same as running a business where you get real-time information on how you're performing. Mm-hmm. Like if you would have walked into our office while we were growing it, on every wall there was a LCD, like a, a LCD screen with our KPIs for our budget and KPIs related to the business. And you knew hour by hour exactly how we were doing. Hmm. And so there's either two, if you're doing well, maybe you're a little bit happier. If you're doing bad, hopefully we have the kind of company that motivated you. Don't fall behind the budget, not even for that hour. Think about what you can do. Again, accountability. Yeah. How do we get ahead of that? So I miss that part of it, the real time kind of operating aspect. You don't get that in an investment business. Hmm. And that's something that definitely I really miss. And then also the control. Ryan and I own the majority of the business the entire time, 16 years we have that business. You know, now as a VC, we're typically owning 5, 10% other than the studio company. So, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't control it. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a very different feeling, uh, especially as someone who has a lot of entrepreneurial experience. You kind of seen things work and not work. And, you know, you have to kind of bite your tongue and sure, smile sure, and, sure. and make suggestions. So and- what would convince you two to jump back in? Are you going to wake up one day with the billion-dollar idea? I think for me, it's just like my kids getting older. That's part of it. Like, I have a 11, 13, and 16-year-old kids. Mm-hmm. I do coaching nights and weekends. They're my, uh, So it's just, I think, a few more years, you know, I think, an, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that shouldn't be a – that probably wouldn't be a challenge, actually. But that, that was originally the, the reason – one of the reasons we started the fund. Mm-hmm. I've heard yeah. – uh, some friends in Silicon Valley, there's you see this more people go invest, start a business. You know, they're doing investors are usually operators and they go back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's very common. I don't think, in fact, at Northwestern, when they do a private equity and venture summit, you see that they talk about the same thing. You learn to run these businesses, whether it's at scale or in the early stages, there's a, a method to the madness and you, you can start as an investor or start as an operator, but in the end, you need to learn the same things to be good at it. Sure. And so there are differences, like Rob talked about, that as an investor, one of the positives are, I think you have more work-life balance. So you can be driven and work a lot of hours, but if you want to shut it off, you, you don't have families to feed. Sure. You know, you don't have customers screaming at you. You, the founder can call you, but You're, they don't usually call. They're too there. busy. Right. So like, I think that that's kind of the, there's, Rob talked about that accountability, that ownership. There's a positive of that, but there's a negative side of that. As you look back on the whole ride, is there a moment that you remember feeling like, okay, we've, we've made it. We've, we've, you know, we could relax a little mm. bit. We've got, you know, the money in the bank isn't going to disappear overnight. Was there, what, what was the moment that it all clicked for you that you had really done it? I mean, from like a personal financial freedom, given where we came from, yeah. like the first exit when we were 25 provided that, like, can, you know, we're, we're, we're set up well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what that allows us to do is take more risk. Like, we don't want to swing for singles and doubles. We want to swing for home runs, at least speaking from my standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so I think that means, like, so what does risk look like? Well, you know, we can invest in companies that have different strategies. Like, you know, like the, take the next gem trading card business. It's a business model that resembles Facebook or Instagram. You know, we're building utilities to then build a network from the users who get value from those utilities. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere in year two or three, we're going to look to make money off of that network. That is not a business model that if you showed it to the vast majority of Midwest investors, that strategy, 
Is it where's your revenue? Where's your revenue? Right, right. No, you're able to take the long. Ryan and I came from that world. We came from consumer social internet companies. Like we were at the ground floor of several multi-billion-dollar social gaming companies, social networks. We don't have to follow the one playbook that worked in the Twin Cities, like enterprise software. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we love enterprise software too. Don't get me wrong. Sure, we've had successes there, but. There are other playbooks. We can we can take advantage of this accumulated knowledge and take more risk. And that risk does have a, a it has a different risk profile. But look at some of the truly you know who wouldn't have wanted to be on the angel round of Facebook, right, or Snap or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's be more open minded. You know, let's not say we can't do things. You know, I think incrementally you you like to keep climbing the mountain. Yeah. And Rob's talking about where he wants to go now. Like when we were in high school, I wanted a job working with internet. <laughs> so the day I could do that full time was when I graduated high school. Yeah. I could pay for my college. I didn't have to use the savings my mom worked so hard for. That was like we made it. Mm-hmm. And then later it was like opening an office with your friends and family. You're creating jobs. Yeah, it didn't go great the first two years, but that we made it. Like we did this thing and, you know, and then, you know, so there's like, I think you have to continually kind of find I mean, people you see entrepreneurs just like Kobe Bryant talks about like every day I got to get better. Don't don't worry about I'm not a superstar tomorrow. You have to get better every day. And it, it just it's that that's what it is. A growth mindset. Yeah. You know, that growth mindset is in our company. The superstars were the Kobe Bryant's they had that growth mindset. And we tried to feed off of each other. Mm-hmm. And if we have I think to me. Having a job in a growth-oriented business, that mindset, I don't care if it's a big company or a small company, when you feel like you're part of this team who's working hard and getting better, it's like being on a sports team. We gave up that early because, like, I don't know, maybe... <laughs> we played basketball and we're both, you know, yeah, we're like we... under six feet, so that wasn't going anywhere. We had an older brother who could block our shots after <laughs> every attempt. You know, he's like a foot taller, so... That can happen in your academics. That can happen in your business. But if you can find that passion and then, you know, find that growth, that's that I don't want to take that from anybody. Like people that grow up with money mm-hmm. and don't have an entrepreneurship, uh, uh, that ability to experience growth and kind of this you made it on your own. That That's what it's all about. And I think that I think culturally you're seeing more of this in Minnesota. But I think in greater Minnesota, it's kind of lacking a little bit. They're so used to like working for yeah. the local you know, XYZ company or service organization, but let's keep going. Let's create more growth opportunities because everyone's going to, it's just so personally fulfilling. Yeah, it is. Well, you guys, it's an amazing story. And I, I think we would all benefit from having a, a twin uh, to, <laughs> to, to challenge us and keep pushing us. And, and those who don't have that, I guess they just need to listen to the two of you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story and thanks for everything that you do in this state and beyond. It's really, really inspiring. Can't wait to see what's next. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Well, you heard it, folks. If you bump into Rob and Ryan at a co-working space, probably don't ask them for money right on the spot. Although it might be tempting because they are so approachable, so kind, and so authentic. Let's go back to the classroom now with the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, where Jay Eben teaches entrepreneurship and really picked up on this theme of authenticity. Jay, what jumped out to you listening to the Weber Brothers? 
Yeah. So thanks for having me, Allison. Uh, you know, there's so much in this in this conversation that we could pick out and talk about, but but to me, what stands out the most, probably about Ryan and Rob, is is that authenticity with which they operate. And you know, they don't just say we believe in Minnesota. They don't just say we believe in building and creating. They don't just say think big. They're they're doing it, and and they do it with a, a good dose of humility. But you can see it's it's genuine, and and I think. To some degree, that's it's underappreciated in especially in venture capital. But I think it's it's particularly true with the Webers and and a big part of their story, and a big part of their success in in their past in launching businesses and and now in in venture capital with what they're trying to do with taking the the venture community from the cities and, and expanding it across the state. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm curious as somebody who teaches investing and teaches venture capital at St. Thomas. Can a founder become an investor? Do, do you need to be a founder first? And does that set you up to be a good investor? That's a great question. I, I don't think there's, there's one path into it. And I think it, you know, it depends on the, on the person. We, we do teach students about how to think like investors. And I'll give you an example. We have just launched a, a venture capital course in our program. And the nature of that course is that we do projects with investors in the business community. So we have uh, hmm. three or four venture capital firms that that come in and on day one of the project, they talk about what they do and they, they assign projects to teams. So something like, here are five companies we invested in last year. They're all ready to raise financing again. Tell us which ones we should invest in. And two weeks later, the students come back. Do the students usually guess correctly? Not always, but... But interestingly, they don't all say yes, that they should invest again. So yeah, the students, they go off and they do their analyses and they come back and, and the investors get to pick their brain. So what was your thought process behind this? And then, and then they kind of compare and contrast the results. So how, how they're thinking about it versus how the students are, are thinking about it. One of the things that that does for students is obviously they're real projects. And so it, it makes it real that these are the real companies, the real founders, they're trying to solve real problems. And so, as I mentioned, I think, you know, one of the, that maybe gets a little bit underappreciated in venture capital, because a lot of times we like to talk about the, the dollars and the money that's involved, but there's more of a, like with, with Ryan and, and Rob talking about building great startups takes building great communities ahead of that. And, and so there's a, a bigger picture kind of underlying piece to this that is that's that's core to, to venture capital and investing that, you know, again, I think, you know, we try to bring it out in our program by making things real and, and showing students versus telling them. And again, you know, you saw this come out in, in the interview with Ryan and Rob as well. Right, right. You're investing in people, not necessarily just the idea or the company. It's really about the people behind it. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, one way I've heard people talk about it is that in, in venture capital, the the founders are the customers, right? And the limited partners are the investors, but if you treat the founders as customers, I think you're you're heading in the right direction. Right. Well, very cool. And how great that you can actually take classes on investing on this side of the startup equation while you're an undergrad at St. Thomas. That's amazing. I, that didn't exist in my day. No, it's relatively new. And I think uh, we're fortunate to be able to do that. 
Yes. Well, very cool. Well, Jay Eben, thank you so much for your perspective. Count us in next semester for sure. (laughs) Thanks so much, Allison. We appreciate your time and thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Schultz School of Entrepreneurship. If you'd like to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find past episodes and all sorts of expertise and insights from our presenting partners at the University of St. Thomas. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. It takes teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Dean Laura Dunham, for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. (laughs) 